You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. If you are looking for a place to read and grow your intellectual life, welcome. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts. Before we get started today, uh, we've been going through Hannah Arendt, just a little overcap or overview for those who haven't are just coming in new. Uh, this is a new segment that we're doing on Solomon's Corner Podcast. We have a long-form podcast that drops every Friday. So for those who have been listening to the book club, Notebook Club post tomorrow, we will have a interview on Live Not By Lies with one of my friends, Dr. Jim Pollock, the final section of that book. Also, uh, we are approaching a goal on Solomon's Corner Podcast with almost 100 subscribers. So we are going to celebrate by giving away 10 copies of Andrew Clavin's A Strange Habit of Mind. We have pre-ordered those 10 in order to support his work and support like-minded individuals. And uh, he's a inspiration for what we're doing here. So we are going to be figuring out a way that we're going to give you those books. So make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast so that you can know how you can be entered to win a free copy of A Strange Habit of Mind, the sequel to When Christmas Comes. So make sure you follow, like, subscribe. And uh, if you are not subscribed to our newsletter, make sure that you go to our website, solomonscorner.com, and look for the little box that says subscribe. Also, please write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts for us. That would really help us. It helps us get higher up in the search results. It doesn't have to be a love letter, but if you can help us out there, that'll help us with getting authors onto the podcast and show that we're not just half-assing this thing. So that said, uh, all the announcements out of the way, today we're going to talk about a fairly advanced section in Hannah Arendt's The Human Condition. We are going to be talking about sections 36 through 38. And so this is the discovery of the Archimedean point and the universal versus natural science. And these titles sound pretty boring. And the first couple pages are. But if you, especially if you're in in the Christian culture or in, in religion, one of the things that's interesting about studying philosophy is starting to see when a philosophical idea has um, merged with Christianity. And given that the Western world was you know, is highly Christian, there's a high probability that a lot of the philosophical ideas have worked their way into our various theological and denominational convictions. And I think that this comes out in what Hannah Rent talks about with the Archimedean point. I had to look this up, so don't feel bad if you had to as well. The Archimedean point is the idea that was uh, popularized, I can't remember which one it was, I think it was... Uh, Copernicus or Galileo, one, one of the guys, you, you can look it up, but, but the concept of an Archimedean point is not as important as who kind of said it first. The concept is that you could stand outside of, of human experience and judge it from an objective perspective or God's point of view, right? Or maybe a, a bird's eye view of things. This would give, you know, the observer the power of truth. That That's kind of the idea here of the Archimedean point. And what Arendt is going to do is she's going to take you through kind of the history of that with Galileo, Bruno, Copernicus, Kepler, all these different guys. But the point that uh, I think she makes and that she's trying to show in these this later section is that man is becoming less human and he's becoming disconnected from the natural state that he's supposed to be in. And so one of the things that she's going to she's going to bring up is this idea of an Archimedean point she's going to get into Descartes and she's going to which is one of the reasons why I picked the book because I think 
Descartes, and I could be wrong on this, but I, I do have this kind of working theory that Descartes is far more influential, especially in, in fundamentalist Christianity, evangelical Christianity, than maybe uh, many of us realize, especially since many of in the evangelical circles aren't privy to the study of philosophy. That doesn't mean none of them are, but a lot of them are, aren't. And so ultimately the Archimedean point kind of stems from this idea that you could step outside yourself and into someone else's experience and understand it from an objective, neutral observer. This ends up leading to the the Cartesian kind of doubt. The immediate philosophic reaction to this reality was not exaltation, but the Cartesian doubt by which modern philosophy, that school of suspicion, as Nietzsche once called it, was founded, and which ended the conviction that only the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. And so one of the things that she's going to draw out here is, yes, there's been this incredible scientific triumph, but with it has come this incredible despair. And she's going to kind of try and explain these two things to you from her perspective. What I think is the reason for the despair is because ultimately I think these systems are actually circular. They're just extremely circular. So when she goes into the mathematical descriptions of I think, therefore I am, we can say, well, that seems a little bit circular. How do you know that you are thinking? And it's because I am. And it's like, well, how do you know that you are? Well, because I'm thinking. And so you have this circular reasoning that happens. But within that, you have this incredible validity of algebra. She she talks about the idea that, you know, man was basically doing mathematics from the standpoint of finite material reality. And this was geometry. And she goes into the idea that algebra becomes this first human discovery that expands man's knowledge from the natural immediate world to the universal world, meaning that man's mind has now transcended the immediate sense experience or sensual experience. And when we say sensual in this context, we're not talking about sex. That's important for people to understand. It's, we're talking about your sense organs, your eyes, your hands, those kinds of things. So geometry basically looked at edges and surfaces like a table, and they deduced, oh, maybe we can create a mathematical relationship here of lines and as edges and area as surface. Now, bear with me because it'll get interesting here in a second. But once they were able to realize that they could expand these concepts out into infinity and start working with abstract concepts, not, not material concepts like, you know, tables, edges, and, and surfaces, but actually move into the idea of things like infinity and numbers in general. This is when they basically started the catalyst of, of leaving our terrestrial boundaries, is what she kind of says. So she says this, modern mathematics freed man from the shackles of earthbound experience and his power of cognition from the shackles of finitude. The decisive point here is not that men at the beginning of the modern age still believed with Plato in the mathematical structure of the universe, nor that one generation later they believed with Descartes that certain knowledge is possible only where the mind plays with its own forms of formulas. What is decisive is the entirely unplatonic subjection of geometry to algebraic treatment, which discloses the modern ideal of reducing terrestrial sense data and movements to mathematical symbols. 
Without this non-spatial symbolic language, Newton would not have been able to unite astronomy and physics into a single science or to put another way to formulate a law of gravitation where the same equation will cover the movements of heavenly bodies in the sky and the motion of terrestrial bodies on Earth. And so what she's, she's trying to show you here is that this mathematical discovery was the first step in man feeling like he was going to be, or knowing that he was going to be able to ascend or transcend his human restrictions. And so what you, what you have in history, like what Hannah Arendt is describing, is you have this back and forth between man's immediate experience, and, and she's very, very narrow here on you know Descartes and others, because she's trying to show you that these, are, these philosophical ideas led to scientific events, and that these events, not the ideas, but the events are what shaped history and its trajectory. And the thinkers of the modern age recognize this and recognize the power of experiment. And so in these uh, experiments, they start to realize that they can actually begin to transcend their earthly shackles, as she, she says it. And so in the experiment, man realized, this is a quote, his newly won freedom from the shackles of earthbound experiences. Instead of observing natural phenomenon as they were given to him, he placed nature under the conditions of his own mind, that is, under, the con- under conditions won from a universal astrophysical viewpoint, a cosmic standpoint, outside of nature itself. So what happens is, is that philosophy kind of moves into this mental space of we're just going to think inside the mental capacity of man. We're going to cast off our, se- our sense of the external world. And you can see this in Descartes, but you can also see this in some of the theological traditions in Islam or in Christianity. We're going to talk about Christianity because I'm more familiar with that one, but you can you can actually see this with Islam as well. When religions make their holy text the total and utter supreme expression of the human understanding of the world, meaning everything has to be filtered through that. And this becomes a problem because when people actually live their lives. They don't actually, you know, when they go to the store, say, is there a Bible verse for buying this box of cereal or a Quranic verse for buying this, this, uh, well, it depends on if you, if you follow the dietary restrictions, but the modern versions of these things, these implementations, oftentimes will look at the philosophical and scientific developments and they will cast off some of the traditions, even though they're written in there. But the point is, is that in this internal system of validity, they plant their flag and they say, you know, interpret scripture through scripture, right? But the problem is, is that scripture doesn't make sense without a reference point outside of it. And so you end up in this circular reasoning. And I think this, this, these circular systems, these philosophical axioms or theological axioms that ultimately lead to a circular human experience can only lead you to one of two places, either irrationality, because you, you can't actually make solid concrete decisions in a concrete world if you're just living in an abstract circle. But secondly, it leads to despair. So you either, you know, spiral out of control, ironically, because it's circular, or you end up spiraling into despair. And so you have to have an anchor point outside of propositional truth in order for the propositions to make sense. This is even true for mathematical experimentation. Until the mathematics actually results in a concrete material experiment, 
it's mere it's just an idea it's just a thought it's it's validly it's valid intrinsically but it's not what we would call sound it hasn't actually demonstrated any truth so this is the problem with this circular reasoning and it's no wonder that whether in religion or whether in uh philosophy that there has been this worship of the scientific experiment because as Hannah Arendt points out that this became the cosmic standpoint the archimedean point the the experiment that man realized was where he really won a new freedom and was able to cast off the shackles of earthbound experience. C.S. Lewis draws the same conclusion, although not in the same detail, in Abolition of Man with the airplane, contraceptives, and the wireless. He's pointing out the same kind of idea that these, these results of human experiment are actually alienating man from his human nature, the way that God intended him to live. It doesn't mean that people were Luddites or, or should uh, you know abandon all technology, but the purpose of these things is what's important. And so what ends up happening in these, these situations is that man actually is trying to, whether he realizes it or not, he's starting to, to play God. And so later on in section 37, she says this on page 269, at the same time, we have begun to populate the space surrounding the earth with man-made stars, creating, as it were, in the form of satellites, new heavenly bodies. So there's the wireless or the aeroplane or something transcending earthly boundaries, like C.S. Lewis said, continuing with Arendt's thought. We hope that in a not very distant future, we shall be able to perform what times before us regarded as the greatest, the deepest, and holiest secret of nature, to create or recreate the miracle of life. I use the word create deliberately to indicate that we are actually doing what all ages before ours thought to be the exclusive prerogative of divine action. Now, for those of you who have been following Solomon's Corner, there is a podcast called The New Religion, Divine Atheism. And in this, we talk about Yuval Noah Harari's work, uh, Homo Deus, in which he explicitly says that we can become a god. And it's not a coincidence, I don't think, that Hannah Arendt draws the creation of life to a divine action. And Yuval Noah Harari's first page in his book is an illustration of an IVF procedure in which he says we are creating life and we are becoming gods. So this idea of creating life through science has become this, this idea that not that we are imitating God, but it has actually evolved into we will become gods. And if you listen to that podcast, it is undeniable because Yuval explicitly states over and over and again in that book, and you should be able to just get it from the title because it means man-god in Latin, but throughout that book, he is explicitly saying that we are now at a point where man can not only create life, but he is also learning how to solve death, and this will naturally lead us to a new kind of man, a god-man, who is not 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 God man as in Jesus, but a man God, in which he now holds the power that traditionally has been reserved for the gods and and will use it for his own ends, which is a scary thought. So this ultimately is what C.S. Lewis points out in his novel form of abolition of man, that hideous strength. And so there's a quote here that made me think of that. It's, if one wishes to draw a distinctive line between the modern age and the world we have come to live in, he may well find it 
in the difference between a science which looks upon nature from a universal standpoint, or from God's perspective, and thus acquires complete mastery over her on one hand, and a truly universal science on the other, which imports cosmic processes into nature, even at the obvious risk of destroying her, and with her, man's mastership over her. So what would happen if man suddenly decided to take Yuval's observations of our scientific discoveries in IVF and through the extension of life and and actually try to become a god, which he explicitly states and cites companies are actually trying to do right now. So it's not it's not a theory, it's actively being pursued. And you can listen to the podcast A New Religion, Divine Atheism, to hear all of those quotes that demonstrate that. But what would happen if man actually pursued this? Well, obviously there's a high risk of catastrophe. If you try to become God, means you're experimenting with divine power. Well, what if you make a, what if you make a mistake? Well, seems like it would be a catastrophic mistake. And so to wrap this up, what what she is talking about in this universal versus natural science, she gives us this historical progression of Galileo telescopes and all this cool stuff, as well as the philosophical background behind you know the mathematics that brought it all about. And what she says is is that now we have two laws. We have the natural law and the universal law. Universal laws being these things that apply even outside of Earth, that actually, from a medieval perspective, would be considered divine laws that we now can use and manipulate to send spaceships and all this kind of stuff or even recreate life. And then there's the natural laws or terrestrial laws, which, you know, are the old things that just kind of keep us locked in our in our shackled Earth. And so... She says on page 270, it is as though we no longer need theology to tell us that man is not, cannot possibly be of this world, even though he spends his life here. And we may one day be able to look upon the age-old enthusiasm of philosophers for the universal as the first indication, as though they alone possessed a foreboding that the time would come when men would have to live under the earth's conditions, and at the same time, be able to look upon and act on her from the point outside, or from God's perspective. While it may affect greatly, perhaps even radically, the vocabulary and metaphoric content of existing religions, it neither abolishes, nor removes, nor even shifts the unknown that is the region of faith. So in our previous podcast, we talked about this uh, region of faith. However, this is why you need the footnotes. She talks about the fact that scientists were supposed to be apolitical. But this obviously is impossible, and we obviously saw that this past two years. In the footnote, she talks about the kings requiring the, when the, when the, relig- the royal societies of uh, intellectuals were formed, kings wanted them to take no part in political or religious stri- strife. That was a quote, which suggests that the, its origin is political and not scientific. The idea that the scientific ideal of, of objectivity was actually politicized by kings in order to make sure that they had people who were outside of the fray of the culture. She continues, An organization, whether of scientists who have abjured politics or of politicians, is always a political institution. Where men organize, they intend to act and to acquire power. No scientific teamwork is pure science. Whether its aim is to act upon society and secure its members a certain position within it, or as was and still is to a large extent the case of organized research in the natural sciences, to act together and in concert in order to conquer nature. So what are we left with at the end of this? Are we going to have scientists that 
decide that they're going to use nature in order to elevate themselves to a divine status? Or are we going to have scientists that look upon the power that God has in, in the potential of nature and recognize that it's not actually imitating, uh, imitating God, or it's not actually replicating what God has done, or imitating his creative power, because obviously he, from any religious text that, you know, we would, well, from, I'm just going to say it, from the Christian perspective, he's created from nothing. And obviously scientists are creating from something, which is a substantial difference in the divine nature of things. But man has made great scientific leaps, but at the cost of his humanness. This is the point of Hannah Arendt. We are playing God, but we are not strong enough to carry the responsibility that comes from said power. Is it any wonder that man has the most triumphal age, but also the most despair? That on the one hand, we have all of this power, and societally, we have all of this depression. Such is the experience of a man who, holding the power of God in his hand, recognizes he is not worthy, but instead of humility and worship, pride and jealousy are infused. And this is when the devil whispers, like he did in the garden, ye shall be as gods. And this, the scientist responds with, this is my destiny. And he decides that he is now going to become God rather than worship God with the power that he's been entrusted with. And so what we should see, what we should actually become when we, when we become scientists is recognize that God gave nature to man, something that he was supposed to control, but was ultimately lead him to imitate God, not become God and that he would be able to create and do all these amazing things, and that it should lead him to worship. The heavens declare the glory of God. Well, how much more so should we be able to also worship God in humility and truth and become better thinkers as a result of this framework in which we actually recognize that there's an intelligent source behind all of these things? But that's not what we've done. And this is why, at the end of this section, she says... Hannah Arendt concludes, page 273, As we said before, not ideas, but events change the world. And the author of the decisive event of the modern age is Galileo rather than Descartes. Since then, the curious discrepancy between the mood of modern philosophy, which from the beginning had been predominantly pessimistic, and the mood of modern science, which until very recently had been so buoyantly optimistic, has been bridged. There seems to be little cheerfulness left in either of them. So, we will continue the book club next week, starting Monday. Tomorrow will be a long-form podcast. If you are enjoying the book club, please send us a review on Apple Podcasts or send us a compliment to mail at solomonscorner.com, mail at solomonscorner.com, M-A-I-L at solomonscorner.com. Thanks for listening, and keep thinking.